Well, we want to start with especially honoring you moms. It says in Proverbs 31 that a husband and children will rise up and call you blessed. So we're going to have uh, the opportunity to do that for you guys here today. I've discovered that children don't do it till they're 35 years of age. So we're, we're, we're going to uh, be uh, a bit preemptive to try to encourage some mom's hearts. And so ladies, would you stand? If you're a mom, stand up. We're going to pray for God's blessing on your life. Wow, look at this, guys. How wonderful is this? Just remain standing. We see you out in the the overflow out there, you guys, just so that you don't feel like you're left out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious moms. Lord, we ask that you would comfort their hearts, whatever this day finds for them. Sometimes it's a day filled with family and joy and closeness, and sometimes there's some pain associated with it. Maybe there's distance or they can't be with their children or grandchildren the way that they want to. So, Lord, wherever they're at on the spectrum, Lord Jesus, wrap your arms around these precious moms. Bless them. Encourage them. Be the source, Lord, and the lifter of their heads to fill their life today with joy and your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, moms. If you need a Bible, our ushers are going to hand out Bibles. Just raise your hand. They'll get you one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, that's a gift for you. You can take it home. And uh, as I mentioned, if you slipped in late, Pastor Rob is officiating this weekend. Go ahead and raise your hand. And you'll get one of those Bibles. We have one over there, a couple over there. And uh, Pastor Rob and Pastor Micah are both at different weddings this weekend, and so we're doing the best we can to minister. And you ladies, if you'll go out the back door after the service, there's a rose out there for you guys. And uh, so at the first service, I said, there's a rose out there, but it's a prop, right? So I, I had to go onto my message, so I dropped it on the ground. There was a gasp from the front rows. It was, it, was, it was a dangerous thing. I'm not doing that again. I'm not repeating. There was almost a uh, matriarchal uprising when I dropped the rose. Somehow it was a symbolic thing that I was dissing moms or something. I don't know what happened, but it, it definitely struck a nerve that I was not aware of. Um, but they're serving uh, crepes out there. It's also a fundraiser, as you heard, for our youth to go to youth camp. Well, we're reading through God's Word in our two-year Bible reading, Anchored in the Word. If you haven't picked one of those up, maybe you're new to our fellowship, welcome. Great to have you with us. We're reading through the Bible in two years, and you can pick up the reading plan or get it off our website. And we'll be looking at John chapter 9 today. So make your way there if you have your Bible to John chapter 9. And we're going to look at our message, A Mother's Day Miracle, from our reading. You know, Mother's Day... It's one of those things that when you are that first-time mother, you remember the nervous Nelly days of being that first-time mother. Some of you might be in that zone right now. And you're just so anxious. Now, after you've had one, two, three, four, it's like, hey, have you seen one? You've seen them all. Kind of 
kind of relaxed attitude. And uh, I know by the time in our photo albums that you know, my oldest, I'm the youngest of four, so my brother Randy, I mean, he has album after album after album of pictures. And then it slowly declines. So, you know, we got a couple of Ricky here at the end. And it's just the way the process works. But one of the things that every, every nervous mom thinks about is I just want my baby to be healthy, right? I mean, I want him to have five, uh, ten, 10 fingers, 10 toes, I, that's right, honey, you, you showed up with a good voice. God bless you. And you want him to be healthy. But our story surrounds a guy that on that Mother's Day, when this mother gave birth to this boy, it was one of those heart-sinking, heart-wrenching moments that the boy was born blind. And they, they maybe didn't know at first because the kids take a while to track with their eyes and things, but their little boy was born blind. And if there's anything that weighs upon a parent's heart is that's the well-being of their children, right? Your kids can be 40 years old and you're still worrying about your kids. You can totally be robbed of your peace today just because your children are having a hard time. Isn't that something? They're connected to our heartstrings. It can be a, a very difficult thing. And so for this child, not only is it born blind, but their culture looked at a birth defect unrightly, not, not correct at all, but they looked at it as the curse of God, even as they looked at barrenness as the curse of God, which are both, I mean, you're already having a hard time emotionally, and then you add on top of that the cultural stigma? What a drag. And so this child is born, it's a son, he's born and he's blind, and now the years go by, there's no improvement, blindness. And a decade, he's 10, two decades, he's 20. And we know at this point that he is of age, which would mean 20 or older. So maybe he's between 20 and 30 years of age, two to three decades of blindness and born into this world in that condition. And here is the situation. In this moment, no doubt throughout your whole life, you're longing for the best for your son. But the parents are poor, so how is their son going to survive? Now he's on the street as a beggar. Unfortunately, some have had that experience of having their children homeless. They don't know where they're at. And, and it's heartbreaking. I cried with a couple one day after church and they were just sobbing because their son had left, he had chosen an immoral lifestyle, he had fled to New York and, he, and they hadn't heard from him in three years. He was in his late 20s. And so they came forward and they were just a heartbroken mom and dad. And so, you know, the Bible says weep with those who weep. And when you see parents really overwhelmed and tears flowing down their face, it's, it's very easy to cry with them because I'm a dad. I'm a parent. I know what that feels like to care so much for your kids. It feels like it goes from your heart all the way down to the tips of your toes. And we prayed, and just for God to do a miracle, and their son, after three years, we prayed, and, and a week later, he called and just let him know he was alive. That was the first step to rebuilding their relationship with them. You know, sometimes life is a mixed bag of blessings and burdens, and that's just real life, right? Not all of life is a Hallmark card. Have you discovered that? <laughs> right? Not all of life is a Hallmark card. Check this out. We're going to look at John chapter 9. And Jesus steps into the story. And he's, 
He's the game changer for any life, is he not? Jesus is the hero of our story. And he steps in and he heals this man that was born blind. Now after two to three decades, Jesus touches his life. And what a gift. But once again, it becomes a controversial thing that creates tremendous stress. Let's stand together and read God's word. We're going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Father, we ask now that you would open our spiritual eyes and open our hearts for the truth of your word that you would speak, Lord. Your servants are listening and attentive for what you would minister now, that you would minister in those deep areas of our hearts that are the most desperate in need of your touch, Jesus. And we ask it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There's 11 thoughts that leap out of this extensive passage, and I want to share with you in our brief time together, the first is the question that the disciples put forth. They say, Rabbi, did this man who's born blind sin or did his parents? Now, this was a typical perspective in their culture. Somebody had to sin. This is the same mindset of Job's friends that were telling Job the whole time. Now, Job, they sat for the first seven days with Job and never said a word and they were perfect comforters because they were silent. As soon as they opened their mouth, they said, Job, you're in sin. Your children died because you're in sin. You've lost everything because you're in sin. You need to repent because your life's a mess. And it just wasn't true. And he said, you guys are miserable comforters. (laughs) He said, as long as you kept your mouth shut, you were great comfort. But as soon as you started spouting your judgment, you ruined everything. And that's what the disciples are doing here. And the disciples looked at this blind beggar. Now, if you've ever traveled third world, beggars are a common thing everywhere you go. I mean, there's, there's beggars. There's, there's moms with babies that oftentimes moms will sedate a baby so they'll just lay there for, you know, 10 hours a day in their laps. It's, it's, it's awful. And I've seen some horrendous, disfigured, terrible situations in third world countries. And here this guy is out there begging, but for his disciples, Jesus and the disciples are walking by. To them, he's just a guy to talk about a theological difficulty. That's what they want to talk about. Hey, we want to know the theology of this. Did he sin or did his parents sin? 
Now, their rabbi Jesus, they knew had the inside track to be able to tell them, and they were sure it was one or the other. You see, the rabbis in that day, there were those who, uh, in a far-reaching way, outside of Scripture, I mean, kind of believed in something uh, akin to reincarnation. So maybe this is like bad karma. Others believed that the baby could actually sin while it was inside the mother's womb before it even made its way out, which I know, I mean, some of you women have had such terrible pregnancies, you believe that's true. They've been sinning for the nine months, right? Making me vomit and sick and kicking me and punching me and making me miserable. And then they destroyed my body with stretch marks. I mean, I get it that, you know, there, there can be some uh, sin there in your, in your perspective. But uh, or the parents' sin. Now, we know that parents can abuse their bodies in such a way, moms that are meth addicts and they have drug babies and all kinds of disabilities. I mean, those things can happen. But this cir- circumstance to Jesus was not a theological nut to crack or just a topic to talk about, but actually a broken life to touch and to heal. Isn't that the beautiful thing? That's the difference so often between Jesus and me and D- Jesus and you. A lot of hurting people for you and I are just a topic to talk about, not a life to touch. But to Jesus, every life is a life to touch. As he interacts with them, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, they are fallen sinners, and we as a human race are fallen, meaning there's sin in our DNA. So there is birth defects, there is sickness, there is disease, and there's death. That's the consequences of sin, the Bible says. You may not be HIV positive, but every single one of us are SIN positive. We're all sinners. And that happens at conception. David tells us in Psalm 151, and at conception, sin was present. And so defects in these things can happen, but Jesus says there's no specific sin of the parents, there's no specific sin of him, but he says something fascinating and encouraging to me in a strange way, and that he says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He said this man's brokenness, the black hole of his experience of darkness and blindness and begging here on the street is this black backdrop in which the color of the grace of God is going to touch and make an incredible portrait of the love of God. You see, every broken life that Jesus touches is that way. You are an opportunity for God to display his grace in you. Each one of us are trophies of the grace of our Lord Jesus. And he takes us in our brokenness, and it might be this blindness or spiritual blindness or this struggle or the background or the abuse or all the garbage that life can throw at us. And Jesus says, you know what? I have come that I might touch broken lives and that I might display my love and grace in your life so that everybody will stand back and go, wow, can God do that in a life like that? Can God do that? Can, can Jesus do that? He most certainly can. And he says, this is his mission in verse 4 and 5. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus realized he was here for a three and a half year period of ministry. Think about it. Jesus lived 33 years and then he died on a brutal cross, was buried and rose from the dead. But he started his ministry at 30 and that's a sprint, man. Three and a half years of touching broken lives. That was it. And he said, the night is coming, meaning his life is going to be over. There's a shelf life where there's a window of opportunity to minister. And Jesus said, I want to make the most of this opportunity. Therefore, I'm going to touch this blind guy's life. Do you know that your life is also, there's a shelf life for our service. 
while we're healthy, while we're, our heart is still beating and we're still breathing, we can be useful vessels for God's glory, to do the works of God, however he works in us and through us. The Bible says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are those good works that you and I are to be doing? We're to be loving God and loving people and however God manifests that in our life to go through life doing that and at the end of life hear from him as we enter glory, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You've been faithful with a few things. I want to entrust you with many things. Do you realize that you are God's workmanship to hurt, touch a hurting, broken world? Your co-worker, you say, well, I'm, I'm no Billy Graham. I'm not traveling the world. You just need to love the people in your sphere of influence. It's that simple. Love your family. Love your spouse. Love your co-workers. Love your neighbors. Love the people in the fellowship, in your neighborhood. Reach out and to be that salt and light for the glory of God. It's not complicated, folks. God will show you what to do and when to do it and how to do it, right? You know, I see people all the time agonizing. I gotta find my ministry for God. I gotta find my ministry. Just wake up, love Jesus, and love whoever God puts in your path. Stop sweating it, man. You're making things way too much, too complicated. Just take off all the pressure. <laughs> right? I need to go do this and I need to go do that. Just. Well, just start in your backyard. I mean, you're trying, to, you're trying to cross the ocean and go to Africa or something, and you can't even love your, the jerk of a neighbor next door. Why don't you start there, right? Before you cross the ocean, why don't you just cross the street? Make it simple. You've got to boil it down. Kiss. Keep it simple. Sweetheart. Oh, I tricked you. It's Mother's Day. I can't stay stupid, right? Just Sweetheart. <laughs> But how's he going to bring this healing? I love this because Jesus doesn't follow the same method. And I'm convinced because he didn't want somebody making a formula like, this is the way you do it. Here, he spits on the ground. And from the spit, he takes dirt and he mixes a little clay and he goes, here's mud in your eye. Right? That's where that toast comes from, this passage of scripture. Here's mud in your eye. And so he smears mud in the guy's eyes mixed with his saliva, his DNA, and he touches him and he said, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. So here this guy is, and, and today they measure things on a spectrum of, you know, if you're legally blind. You can be legally blind and see light and figures and, and different things, but my stepdad is 100% blind, and he lived with my wife and I when we were newlyweds for about six months, and uh, at the age of 38, uh, we were all bull riders, and, and a bull stepped on my stepdad's head and crushed his head and blinded him, and so he's 100% blind. And uh, when you, I mean, a blind person is totally vulnerable, right? I mean, you, you absolute darkness. And unless you know your surroundings, you have no point of reference with your cane, um, or any of these things. And my wife and I, after we, we felt like we were so abusive because we just didn't live in a blind world, right? You're just, you live by sight. And so I'm learning to lead him everywhere and you're, you know, steps, you're like, step up, step up, step up, step down, step down. And I'm guiding and directing him. And one day we come home and I, I go to open the living room door and, and the couch is in front of it. So it opens about a foot. And I said, hey, hon, there's, you know, what's going on? She said, oh, I'm rearranging the furniture. Now, Tammy rearranged the furniture about every two to four weeks at our house, okay? And she's a, she's a new, you know, young married girl. She gets bored with the furniture, so she swaps it around, wanting different looks. And said, I said, okay, pull the couch out, and we'll get in. And when, I, when she said I'm rearranging the furniture, Tony, my stepdad, who's hanging onto my arm with his, uh, his cane, 
he drops his head like this. And I said, what? And he said, my shins just healed up from the last time Tammy rearranged the furniture. <laughs> One day, him and I were doing the dishes. He wanted to help do the dishes, so we're doing the dishes. And I didn't think about it. I opened a cupboard door, and he just turned, you know, and it, it just hits him. I'm like, I'm the most abusive jerk of a son. I, none of it was intentional. It's just like you don't live in a black world. You, you can see. Here, this guy, now, he can't see Jesus, Right? Because he's blind. Jesus puts mud in his eyes, and then he tells him, go to the pool of Siloam. So he's got to go to this pool, which is a ways away. And this is, the pool of Siloam is where Hezekiah built a tunnel uh, in time of siege. It's one of the most phenomenal feats of engineering. And the, and the pool comes in there, and he has to go down these stairs. And so somebody's got to lead him there. And he goes, but when he watches, now, if there's something in your eye, you immediately want to find a faucet, right? And get it out. I don't care if you're blind or not. I mean, it, it hurts your eyes. He gets there, and when he washes it out, he can see. Now, I want you to pause here and just bask in this moment. Maybe he's 20, 30 years old. He's never seen the color of the sky. He's never seen a green tree. He's never seen the face of his parents. He's never seen his own hand in front of him. He's never seen anything but the, the sounds of life around him. And you know, when you lose one sense, oftentimes your other senses are elevated because they're, you know, finely attuned, especially hearing. And for the first time, he can see. And this is the greatest, I mean, if you're a mom or a dad, right, and your son is 30 years old and never been able to see, and he's on a street begging, and now he has vision, man, talk about a glorious, miraculous Mother's Day present, right? Man, that would be amazing. But we miss something that there's a conflict associated with it. Jesus was constantly doing something specifically to deal with and to challenge the false tradition of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He kept doing it over and over. He kept healing on the Sabbath, which totally torqued them off because that belie they believed that he was doing work. And so now this guy that basically everybody ignores walking by on the street becomes this very controversial community individual because he has been healed on the Sabbath. For him, do you think he cares? I don't care what day of the week. I've been waiting my whole life to be healed. Right? Who, who cares about your silly traditions? Now, Jesus, and they're going to charge Jesus with working because he made clay. A little spit, a little bud on the eye, like that was work. Jesus kept challenging them about the Sabbath, and he said things like this. The Sabbath was not made, or man was not made for the Sabbath, meaning you're not a slave to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you to enjoy rest, right? It's, it's the difference of a servant and a master. The Sabbath was to be a servant to refresh a human, but they made it the master, so it was like this bondage. It was awful. Man, do you, I have, I've been a preacher for 32 years, so I have Mondays off and when Monday morning comes and I can sleep in and it's my day off and it's a day of rest, I was like, hallelujah, hallelujah. I just sleep in. I have no responsibilities. I get up late. I go for a sleepy walk with my wife to the coffee shop, get a coffee. Then we go to the gym and semi-hurt ourselves because we're old and we have to do those things. And we walk back and we pray as we come back. And I just, I love a day. I feel so refreshed when I have a day off that I can now face the rest of my week, right, that's in front of me. That's what it's designed for. But I hear some people describe their day off. 
and they have this legalism and they got this list of what they do and what they won't do. And I was like, I listened to it and I go, what a drag. That seems like such a burden. Shouldn't it be like, ah, rather than, ah. But that's what the Pharisees made everything, wasn't it? You see, Jesus came to bring life and that more abundant. When Jesus is present, grace and love and freedom flows. When legalism and self-righteous judgment rules, nobody has any joy. You ever been around really self-righteous religious people? They look like they've been sucking on lemons their whole life. (laughs) Hi, we're the holy chosen. Don't you want to be like us? Say, no, thank you. Whatever you have, I don't want to catch it because it looks like a disease. Because the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. You see, the Pharisees, in verse 13, it says, They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Now, prior to this, just for the sake of time, stepping over it, The neighbors were the first to notice that Johnny down the street that grew up blind, they're like, hey, isn't that Johnny? Look at, he can see, he's walking around. So he said, no, he looks like him. And he's right there, he goes, it's me. Don't you hate it when people talk about you when you're in the room as if you're not there? But I guess that's what you do to a blind guy, right? They've probably been talking about Johnny his whole life right in front of him. And he goes, no, it's me. And they said, well, who did this to you? And he said, a man called Jesus. Now, as the neighbors spread the news, then the Pharisees, the religious leaders in their church, their local community synagogue, calls him before them to be upon the carpet to give an account for his miraculous healing. Now, you would think in any congregation, if there was somebody born in this congregation and he was blind for 30 years and we heard he was healed, wouldn't we just have a celebration? We're going to have a party, right? This is something to celebrate because God is so good. And yet, what do we see here? This division that happens because they're so hung up on the Sabbath. Jesus would say in another place, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I will do whatever I want to do because I'm in charge of the Sabbath, Jesus said. And I want to set people free. I want to heal people. That's what I'm going to do. And so they begin to be divided. You see, Jesus has always been a polarizing figure, even within these religious leaders, because the religious leaders said, this guy can't be of God because he healed on the Sabbath. He broke their traditions. He didn't break God's law, but he broke their traditions. And the other said, well, a guy that's not from God can't heal a man of blindness. This guy's got to be from God, right? That's a very practical, logical thought process. The devil's not going around empowering people to be healed, right? He wants to destroy people's lives, not heal them. And so there's this division. So they ask him. Now, he has said a man called Jesus before, and now they ask him, what does he think? And he says in verse 17, he is a prophet. You're going to watch a progression in this guy's life. His name, he's a man called Jesus. 
I never even saw him. I don't even know what he looks like. And now he goes on record as they challenge him because there's a debate between the religious leaders. He's of God. He's not of God. And he goes, no, I think he's a prophet. I think he's a prophet of God. But now the parents come into the scene. Now all of this stuff seems to be happening in very succinct, narrow period of time. Meaning maybe an hour, maybe a couple hours. And he, because he's an adult out on the streets begging and he gets healed and now he's called be, before the religious leaders, now his parents come in. Now think about it. This is the first time he's ever seen his mom and dad's face. Can you imagine? He's heard their voice his whole life, but he, he's never seen their face. You would think this would be the most glorious moment ever for parents, right? Now, my wife, when she's with our children or our grandchildren, she has what our family lovingly says is the mama glow. And I read an article, and I could never really figure this out, because there's something, it's almost like my wife becomes high uh, when she's with the kids. And she's just, and, and I read this article in USA Today, and it was an article about doting or gushing mothers, and the more uh, lovingly expressive a mom is when she's with the kids that it actually releases or touches the part of the brain that cocaine addicts, actually their brain is touched. So like when you're high on coke and you're like, you know, I'm revved up. Hopefully you don't know what that's like. I do know what that's like. And so you're all revved up. Right? You're all coked out. And, and they say that that's the same part of the brain that the mama gushing, because my, my wife, when she hugs my son and she just soaks him up, and she hugs my daughter, and she hugs my son-in-law and my daughter-in-law, and she hugs the grandkids, and then she just, she's like, oh, it's just so, this is so wonderful, it's just so great. It's, and so the, the kids say, well, mom's got the glow going on, right? You'd think it'd be that kind of moment right now, but the tension is so thick, you can cut it with a knife, and, and it's not that kind of experience. It's not that kind of Mother's Day. And Because, you know, sometimes when Jesus drops the bomb of his presence into a family, sometimes it causes conflict. That might be what your family looks like this Mother's Day. You know, some people are not going to come. You're not going to hear from them. Maybe there's been estrangement. There's been estrangement through this last year of families because some of our relatives have heard you come into a meeting without a mask and sit shoulder to shoulder without social distancing, right? And so when Thanksgiving came and Christmas came, they said, no, thank you, you super spreaders, you psycho deplorables, you must stay away. And it's sad, but... It's Jesus that brings this healing and brings this freedom to our souls, but it oftentimes will cause conflicts in other places. Sometimes with that best friend or that coworker at school, wherever it might be. And so now we see this with the parents and the son. And this is amplified to me because of my fatherly love and my, my desperate, intense protectiveness of my kids. If this conflict, you put yourself in the sandals of these guys in the room. Check it out. In verse 18 through 23. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. They're just like, you weren't even blind. And received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because, why? They feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was, meaning Jesus, Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Here's a guy that's called on the carpet. A miracle's happened. First day of his sight, maybe an hour or two in, he's just taken in. I mean, it would, you would think you'd be overstimulated, right? With that much glory coming into your eye, eye uh, senses. And, and in this moment, his parents, as he sees them and he recognizes their voices and he sees their faces, now, because they're afraid of the group of religious leaders, they distance themselves from him. You see, I, I think born blind, this guy had lived a very lonely life. Because, you know, when you're blind, it's a world unto itself. And now he's a blind beggar, and that's what he did every day. And no doubt he thought that the visual healing that now has taken place that Jesus has provided is going to produce this incredible intimacy and closing the distance between his mom and dad, maybe even the stigma that they felt because of their culture, thinking that somebody had sinned, just like the disciples said. Did, you, did the parents sin or did he sin? Ugly stigma. And maybe the distance was there. But now this situation, you would think, and I'm, I'm just very uh, protective of my family. I would, be, <laughs> I would be so torqued off in this moment at these religious leaders about my boy. Right? I'm a pastor, so I can only say this. I would say, fooey on you. <laughs> if I was in the world, I would say something else. You know what I mean? Like the intensity, like, are you guys out of your mind? My son's been blind his whole life, and he's now healed, and you want to talk about your stupid traditions about Sabbath? And you want to threaten to kick our family out of church because Jesus, the one that did it, you're afraid we're going to say he's the Messiah, the Christ? Well, I got news for you. If a guy's going around healing the blind, maybe he is the Messiah. And maybe your traditions are all wrong. And you want to go on record and have your kids back. But the fear, you have to understand, excommunication meant it was severe. You've grown up in a community and a culture your entire life. And when you're excommunicated, you are cut off from the church. You're cut off from all relationships. You are ex they treat you like a leper. They're never to talk to you again. Do you imagine how isolating that would feel? Like people cutting you off like that? And that's why his parents are afraid. And they're like, he's of age. Let him talk for himself. We're not going to say anything. We, we, we don't want to be excommunicated. We still want to come to church on Sunday. I'm like, I don't think I would be caring to go to church on Sunday morning or Saturday morning, because it's Jewish synagogue, to hang out with people that are going to treat my son like that. Now, if it was some heinous sin or thing that you had to work through and, and, and process, well, that's, that's a different story. But this is a healing. Somebody was blind, and now they can see. You know, sometimes in our sin, there's a loneliness in our sin, because we know our own guilt and shame. And then we come to Jesus. And then we're hoping, because you know the, the, the number one desire of a human heart, do you realize this? 
whether you've put, ever put words to it, the number one desire of every human heart is to sense belonging and love. That is the number one desire of every human being, to sense love and belonging. And you crave it, and you long for it because God created you that way, to create community, to crave intimacy. And here it's all threatened. It's threatened with his parents. It's threatened his blindness kept him isolated and separated from people. But now he becomes the witness, and the guy that was the blind beggar on the street, he becomes the preacher man. And I love this. His boldness to me, I'm just like, go fight win, guy. <laughs> Look at this. In verse 24 through 34, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory to God. This is like saying, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I love this, that though I was blind, now I see. That's like the shortest testimony on the planet, isn't it? I was blind, I see, end of story, Jesus is the Lord, right? That's a pretty short, good testimony. He said, this is what I know. You, you guys are saying he's a sinner because he did it on the Sabbath. And it says in verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already and you did not listen. Why, do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? He's now talking trash to him. I love this. He's just talking, talking to you going to become his disciples? He's like preaching. He's going from the beggar, the blind beggar, to the preacher. Verse 28, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We, don't, we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he opened my eyes. Now we know, look at his preaching. Now he's becoming the theologian. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He goes on record and he said, it's unheard of that somebody born blind would receive their sight. And we know that God listens to those who have relationship with him and what you guys are saying, that he healed me and that, you know, the devil once again is not the one out there doing those things. He said, there's, there's only one answer. Jesus is from God. And they hated this. And it says, in verse 34, they answered him and said, you are completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. You're out. They gave him the left foot of fellowship for telling the truth, for being healed, which should have been the greatest day of miracle celebration in his entire life. It became the most heartbreaking day of his life. Because in that moment, he's excommunicated from his community, the church. He's excommunicated. You see, his parents would be forbidden to even speak to him. And the loneliness of what this man just went is, is going on record. But you know, his life, there was one thing that they could not argue with. You think cancel culture is a new thing? They couldn't deal with the truth? What do you do if you, if you can't? You can't handle the truth, right? What do you do if you can't handle the truth? Well, you just cancel culture. You take them off Facebook, take them off YouTube, kick them out of the synagogue, right? That's what you do. Cancel culture's been around a long time, right? Just cancel you out. Because you know what? We got to, you know, don't, don't confuse 
me with facts. <laughs> Don't confuse me with truth because I want to believe my false narrative over here and I'm in the dark in my false narrative and we have this group of people in the dark with our false narrative and how dare you turn on the lights and say as that old fable is, the king is naked. He doesn't, you know, the king's new clothes. You're, hey, dude, you're naked. It took a little kid to say the truth. And that's what he's doing. He's calling these guys out and in this moment, the one thing that nobody could argue with and what is that? He said, I was blind, now I see. Nobody can argue with you about the transformation of your life in Jesus. It's the one thing they cannot argue with. They can argue with you theologically. They can argue with about all kinds of things. But the one thing is that when people knew me the way I was in the darkness that I lived in, and then when Jesus changed me, they couldn't argue with the transformation. I was a young Christian. I'd been a Christian a couple of years, and, and I was reading my Bible uh, in the morning, and I, I was reading the passage. Jesus said that if you get, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And uh, it, I like to say, if you don't talk to your Bible, it won't talk to you. Meaning, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm, I'm like having a conversation with. Well, I was like, Lord, I don't know if I could do that. Somebody smack me in the face. I'm going to punch him right back in the face, maybe twice. You know, and I'm go, and I'm talking to the Lord about my you know Bible reading for the morning and trying to process this. I'm like, honestly, Lord, I just don't think I could do that, and that seems crazy when you come from kind of a scrappy background. If somebody punches you in the face, I mean, it seems kind of in a wimpy not to step up and, and defend yourself in Jesus' name, of course, but, you know, step up and, you know, give it, give it to them however you can, you know, hoping and praying for strength as you did it. So, uh, and so I was playing the, in the city league basketball uh, league and I was playing with all these, you know, unsaved guys and we were playing in city league and we were just, we were wiping this team out and I kept stealing a ball from this big guy that they had in the center. And he was a big guy, and I, I got the ball from him, and he was so frustrated because they were losing. He just, I mean, he didn't even try to uh, act like it was an accident. I mean, he, he just hit me as hard as he could in the head with his elbow. And so much that he got ejected out of the game and ejected out of the gymnasium, and it was a big hoorah moment. And as soon as he hit me, I mean, immediately it was just, you, if you, you know, it's, I've discovered that the flesh always shows up first, <laughs> right? It's just boom, one step, and I was just ready to throw down there on the, the basketball court, and I took one step, and the Spirit of the Lord, I had just been reading that passage that week, telling the Lord, I didn't, I didn't know if I could do that. This guy just struck me in the face, and the Lord just pulled me up short, and he said, you're not that guy anymore. You're my servant. And it was the hard, one of the hardest things as a young Christian that I ever had to do because I just, I put my head down and I turned around and I walked back to the bench where, and just sat down. I knew I was being obedient to God, but I was so humiliated for my masculinity that it was a very, I was, I was so uh, conflicted inside of me. But I just went and sat down and I'm like, I'm going to be obedient to you, Jesus. I wouldn't do it for anybody else, but you died for me and you rose from the dead, so I'll do it for you. Right? That, that was my mindset. And I'm just sitting there so humiliated in the sense, happy that I was obedient, humiliated that I'm in front of all my, my man, man friends. And there was no question before I was saved. I would have just flew at the guy. And so I'm sitting there with my head down, and they're trying to get that guy. He's like doing a raging thing. They're trying to get him out of the gymnasium. And a guy that I'd went to high school with was on the team. And he said, I don't know what just happened, but he said, the Rick Brown I know, that's not him. 
And he said, if that would have been the Rick Brown I know, we would have been watching a, you know, a brawl here, just full-blown brawl. And he said, but ever since he did this Jesus thing, he wasn't a Christian. I mean, he was just kind of like, you know, his Jesus, his new Jesus freak season of life. He's like, ever since he just did this Jesus thing, he's a different guy. And he was apologizing for me, not throwing down and blaming it on my walk with the Lord, which was accurate. The thing that my friend who knew me in high school and then saw on the basketball court in a city league game, you cannot argue with a transformed life. You can say whatever you want about me, what I believe, this or that, but when somebody goes from being a drunk to sober, from a drug addict to clean, from promiscuous to honoring the Lord and their sexuality, you cannot argue with a transformed life. And this blind man stood before the, the this group of religious leaders and said, I was blind, now I see, and the reason for it is Jesus. And that's the simplest testimony you can give. You don't have to, I don't know enough Bible verses or this or that. No, every one of you got a story to say, this is where I was. I cried out to God. This is what he did. That's a beautiful thing. And in that moment, you see, though it was awful lonely, right? He just got kicked out of fellowship. He's already lived a lonely life of blindness. But in his loneliness, I love this, Jesus comes and finds him. And Jesus will come and find you. And fellowship with you, it says in verse 35 through 38, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. Jesus came after him because he heard they had kicked him out. Jesus came and found him. You know, in your isolation, in your loneliness, when the whole world and even your family turns your back, they're back on you, Jesus will be intimately close with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. He will be with you always. And that's the beauty of who Jesus is and his care, his his disciples wanted to talk about a blind guy in the street like he was a theological conundrum. Jesus looked at him compassionately like he was a human. The synagogue, the religious leaders kicked him out. His parents distanced themselves. And Jesus went after him and found him and introduced himself. Now face to face because for the first time he could see Jesus, right? Because he couldn't see Jesus before. Now he sees Jesus. Who is he, Lord? He said, it's me. And he believed in him. And he worshiped him. Worship is only received by God. You can't worship anybody else. You can't worship angels. You can't worship saints. You can't worship anything. And Jesus, being God in human flesh, he receives his worship. But this is the thing. Jesus is the continental divide. He's the sword that divides humanity. And so at this moment, when this guy worships him and believes in him, He says there's this other group of people. As it says, Jesus is the judge in verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. He said, I came into this world and those who are spiritually blind, when they believe in me, they now have spiritual eyes. Have you believed in Jesus? Do you have spiritual eyes? And he said that those who see and they think that they're good, they're fine. They don't need, right, they don't, they don't need God. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need a Savior like this guy. 
It says the the picture of the unbeliever in verse 40 and 41. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. He's basically saying, You religious leaders think you're good enough and self-righteous enough to go to heaven apart from a Savior. Therefore, I can be of no assistance to you. You are dead in your sins. You are blind in your sins. But if you looked at me and you said, hey, man, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually blind. I need God. I need help. Would you forgive me? I want to go to heaven. Then Jesus said, then I would give you vision and you'd be saved. You see, this very very simple thing. Do you know the hardest people in the world to minister the love of Jesus to? It's good people that don't think they need a Savior. Right? It's not the hard ones. Jesus said, The Pharisees were not coming into the kingdom of God because they were self-righteous. They didn't see their need. They're like, Jesus gave a parable one day. He said, kingdom of God's like two guys. They go down to the temple to worship God. And the first one's a Pharisee. And he goes, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe. And I went through this whole self-righteous list of who he was. And he said, I tell I love how Jesus said it. He said, he prayed thus with himself. He prayed by himself because God wasn't listening right, about how good he was. And he said, at the same time, another guy came up, a sinner, and he beat his chest, and he didn't even feel worthy to look up to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went down to his house, forgiven and justified by God. The self-righteous guy went home with all of his sin and all his baggage. The hardest person to share with is a person that does not see their need. Maybe they've had a good life. Maybe they had great parents. Maybe they were on the honor roll. Maybe they've, you know, they're kind of a rule follower. They've always done the right thing. They pay their taxes. They're a good employee. They do, you know, they have a family. They're nice people. Do you know that being nice and being good doesn't get you to heaven? Otherwise, would not God just give a command to say, be nice and be good and you'll come to heaven? He's not going to send his son to die upon a brutal cross because, you see, if people are going to get to heaven, they have to either be perfect Sinless. Anybody in the room? Perfect. Sinless? Please, I always have one weirdo raise their hand. That's why we've invited health workers with a paddy wagon to haul you off, because you are a mentally unstable person. None of us are perfect, right? None. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us is perfect. Perfect people go to heaven, or, since there are none of them, forgiven people go to heaven. Because there was one perfect person, Jesus, who was the perfect sacrifice, so that he could give forgiveness to the rest of us bozos who haven't been able to figure it out. And we can simply say, Jesus, save me. I'm going to go to heaven. Think about it. I'm going to go to heaven because of what someone else did for me. And yet when, I, when people say, hey, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? I said, absolutely, I'm going to heaven. They go, well, that's so arrogant. I said, how is it arrogant to say, I know I'm going to heaven, but I didn't deserve it. Jesus paid the price for me to go, and I just believed in him, and so I'm getting this whole grace ride thing going on. I'm not bragging about me, but I am bragging about Jesus. The Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Jesus is the hero of our story. These individuals, I have talked to so many people through the years, and I would rather talk to a messed up (laughs) broken down sinner seven days a week than one person that convinces me about how good they are and why God should let them into his perfect heaven. It's, it's, It's really just sickening. I mean, honestly. But they so believe it in their mind how good they are that they don't need Jesus. 
And I simply come to the bottom line for them. If you think you don't need Jesus and you don't know that you have missed the mark of perfection, you are destined for eternity separated from God because he only receives those who will come to him and acknowledge their sin and come to him and ask for his forgiveness and realize like the blind beggar on the street, I got nothing to lose and Jesus is the only answer. I got nothing to lose. That's what I tell people. Sometimes you're counseling with someone and they've been you know, through five marriages and they're sitting there and you're talking to them and you're trying to share the Lord with them and as I'm trying to share the Lord with them and share biblical principles about marriage, they sit there and tell me, you know, they tell me why everything that God's word says is wrong. And I just go, let's just stop. You've done five marriages your way. How'd it turn out? You got nothing to lose. Why don't you just try out one way God's way, just one time. What do you got to lose? People's lives are a total broken mess, and they tell me how that, you know, this and that, why can't they? I said, you know what? What do you got to lose? You've made a mess of your life for 50 years. Why don't you give Jesus a shot? Right? I mean, it just sounds logical to me. Sounds like, you know, cookies at the, on the bottom of the shelf. I think anybody could reach for this bag of cookies. Jesus is here to give you spiritual vision instead of your spiritual blindness. And there may be conflict, just like this guy went through all of this conflict, and his testimony was simple. I was blind, but now I see. That can be your story too, spiritually speaking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for meeting us in a special way here. And Lord, I just pray for those who today... They just realize their need for you and what your word is speaking to them. And Lord, I pray for them that your spirit would draw them to yourself, that they would open their eyes, spiritually speaking, and confess their own spiritual blindness and that they need your touch, Jesus. Do that work right now. So we're just in an attitude of prayer. If you want to open your heart by faith and just receive Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to pray with me right now. Just in the quietness of your own seat, It's an act of faith for you to pray and to lift your heart to the Lord in prayer. And I'm just going to lead you in a very simple prayer to give you that opportunity. Pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I realize that I've just been spiritually blind. Would you give me spiritual eyes to see? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you lead me? in your love and relationship with you. I believe you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the dead for me and that you're here today asking to live inside of me. And so, Lord Jesus, I invite you in to be the Lord of my life. Take me, use me, fill me with your heart your love, your joy, and your peace. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing this closing song. This is a beautiful song the worship team is going to sing. Rather than hurry off, just listen to these words. And like the blind man, just sing them for the first time where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom.